0: me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for this day, and we thank you, Lord, for this season. Lord, we ask that you would highlight those things today in your word to us, that apply to us. Lord, we ask that you would work with us and use us as we sang together earlier, that we might be the light of Christ we might carry it with us today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A few years back, when um, Leah and I were preparing to be married, we ran across a statistic that the average wedding today costs $30,000. <laughs> That blew us away. We spent nothing near that. Actually, we spent nothing. Uh, Our parents parents did. But $30,000. $30,000. Wow. That's a lot of money. But I'll tell you what. That's nothing compared to the lavishness that went on in Jesus' time for weddings. And still goes on in other parts of the world, from what I understand. Where celebrations can go on for days. And even a week, some are recorded to go. That's the context of Jesus' first miracle that John records in his gospel. We continue here in the season of Epiphany with two themes. Those twin themes that are tied together throughout this season. Number one, the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ Christ. The anointed one. Number two, the redemption of creation. The redemption of creation. Open with me to John chapter 2, if you would. John chapter 2 in your Bible. And if you're someone that likes to know these things, chapter 2 through chapter 12 is known as the book of signs within the book of John, okay? The book of signs, and you know, in the ancient world, the word book can also mean chapter, so this is like a subset. But if you look at John's gospel, you can see that there is a clear demarcation between John chapters 2 and 12, and then chapter 13. We look together here at the first part of that book of signs. We're going to come back to that idea, too. This week, we actually have a real-time week in the Scripture. Remember last week I told you that, you know, the baptism of Jesus, of course, jumps many years because it's driven by a theological theme, right? So, So we jump to Jesus being an adult and being baptized to emphasize who He is. But this week... It's literally seven days between last week's reading and this week's reading, which is kind of cool. It doesn't happen very often, explicitly that way in Scripture. So it's seven days later, and what's happened? Well, Jesus has been baptized, and Jesus has called some of the first disciples to him. We're in real time here. The wedding at Cana happens a total of seven days after Jesus' baptism. And our reading today says, the third day, which should make us ask, well, third day after what? And it's the third day after Jesus starts calling the disciples. He goes to this wedding. It starts at his calling of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and an unnamed one in John 135, which most, of pe- most people take to be John the apostle himself, because he's just not naming himself, but he's writing these things firsthand, so we assume that he was there. The wedding we see here was one of these lengthy events, and it was an incredible shame to run out of wine in this culture. It was an incredible shame to not be a good host in this culture. We still have some of that, but but our idea of that can't compare to the idea of that in Jesus' day. You know, it'd be like if you guys had a wedding, and you were getting married, and people showed up at the reception hall, and it was just an empty hall. There was no food, there was no drink, the, the wet bar wasn't there, right? It was just an empty hall with no tables set up, no chairs, and it was like, okay. That kind of gets to what's going on here in this culture where wine would run out. Why? Because the groom in this culture was expected to pay for the wedding. And it was a sign of his industry, a sign of his, his labor, um, a sign of his being able to take care of his wife and his future family that he would throw such a party. And so if he's out of wine, this is a big problem. No small thing. Commentator D.A. Carson writes here, Why is Mary concerned about this problem? He asks the question. Look with me at John chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Thomas Aquinas, a theologian in the medieval era, says this about this passage. He says, in Mary's intercession, note first her kindness and her mercy, for it's a quality of mercy in regard to another's distress as one's own, because to be merciful is to have the heart distressed at the distress of another. Who is weak, and am I not weak? And so, behold, the Blessed Virgin was full of mercy. She desired to relieve the distress of others. We see Mary recognizing this problem. But the question still remains, why is she concerned? Is it just out of goodness? How does she know that the wine's already running out? Um, We don't know this, but it seems that this is probably a family member or a relative of Mary and Jesus. She's got some kind of inside scoop here as to what's going on, right? She knows the wine is running out. And Mary, the first believer in Jesus, here embodies both the season of Epiphany and the church. She sees Jesus' deity, and she sees how he's been baptized by John and started his public ministry. And like all good mothers, she desires to relieve the stress of those around her. But Jesus comes back to her with an interesting reply. Did you catch it? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's kind of odd, isn't it? You think, this is Jesus. Why wouldn't he just want to help? This is the Son of God, after all. There's more going on here than meets the eye. Jesus seems to rebuff Mary, except if we look at his words closely. And again, if you're one that notes things in your Bible, my hour has not yet come is a good thing to underline or note in your mind. My hour has not yet come, Jesus replies. That's the key. And it unlocks the rest of what's going on in this passage. Jesus replies, His hour has not yet come to Mary. And this phrase will happen again and again in John's Gospel. Later on in chapter 12, you remember this passage, the Greeks come up to Jesus, or they come up to the apostles, and they say, We would see Jesus. And Jesus is here um, at the end of the book of signs, saying to them, The hour has come, For the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? He's using imagery, right? The hour has come, and unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. I'll give you a hint. That's one of the readings for Good Friday. So, what Jesus is saying there is that his hour has come in the sense that the Messiah is here, and yet the hour of our redemption, the hour of the cross, has not yet come. That's what he's saying to his mother. It's not complete yet. But notice in verse 7, Jesus proceeds to give the servants instructions back in John 2. So he says my hour is not come, but then he tells the servants to fill up these water jars. What's going on? Has Jesus changed his mind? I don't think so. I think there's so much more going on here that meets the eye. You see, in John's gospel, it's this gospel is meant to be read and reread and chewed on. In a sense, all scripture is meant to be that way, right? But we as Westerners read from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, and we think to ourselves, okay, I've read that book, we put it back on the shelf, and we move on. John's gospel is meant to be chewed on, to be chewed on, to, to be read over and over again. There's a reason that John's gospel begins in the beginning was the word, and not say, with Jesus' genealogy, like Matthew, or with an angel announcing John the Baptist, like Luke, or the chain of events that we find in the Gospel of Mark. John wants us to look beyond and to see the significance of what's going on behind what's going on. And it's not that these aren't historical events, that's not what I'm saying, but that there's a reason that John records the way he records Jesus' life. And so here we look at John the Evangelist, and it should send up a, an, our antennas when we see that Jesus is here enacting theology. He's literally embodying theology. Look at verses 6 through 8 as we continue in John's Gospel. Now there were some six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. You probably know the rest of the story, at least the rest of what happens, right? What happens? The water is miraculously changed to wine, and the master is amazed at how good a wine it is, right? But read with me again, and pay close attention. When the master of the feast tasted the water now, become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So that last line's important. This miracle continues that epiphany theme of Jesus being demonstrated and demonstrating himself as God. But you know what else is being shown? You know, there's an old saying that is attributed to St. Jerome, one of the first translators of the Bible, that the scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. It's a great saying. You might say, well, that's a great general statement, but how does it apply here? Notice in verse 11, what word is used to describe this event. Because if we pay attention to what John's telling us, he's telling us. He's giving us the answer. Verse 11. Read it closely. What's the purpose? To show Christ's glory. Show Christ's glory. Yeah. And what is it? Don't miss this. You see, you see, so often we skip over these small words. What's going on And this is just an easy answer. What's going on in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana? What does John call it? Does he call it a miracle? Of course it is a miracle. What what does he call it? He calls it a sign. And that's really important here. That's really important here. The Greek word for sign is semia, whereas the word for a miracle is dynamis. All the other Gospels use the word dynamase to talk about Jesus' mir- miracles. Right? Dynamis, the same Greek word root that we get the word dynamite from or dynamo. It means power. John uses another word. Samia. Samia. Sign. Pointing. Literally, in the Greek, it's a sign, like like a thing that you'd see on the post or on the road pointing to something else. So John is saying here, this is a miracle. Yes, it shows that Jesus is the Son of God. But he's saying so much more than that. He's saying, pay attention because this is a sign to you. This is a sign to you. What's it a sign of? Well, John wants us to look into something more. Think about it. What is a wedding all about? Joy, love, commitment, abundance, so many things, right? Good things. What is a wedding in the Bible? What's associated with weddings in the Bible? Why is this the first miracle? I'll give you a hint. Take a look at the Old Testament. Take a look at our first reading. Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 4. You shall be more, you shall no more rather, be termed forsaken. And your land shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. How about that for a name? My delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you see what John's trying to say? This is that second point the redemption of God's people. As part of the redemption of the world. Do you see that? Notice the imagery that's used. Again, historical, yes, but more than that. What is it that becomes wine? Water. What kind of water? What kind of water? What's the containers? What's the purpose of the containers? It says it right there. Purification, ceremonial washing, right? So here you've got John saying, we're going from a time of ceremonial washing where you are unclean and you're desolate and you can't approach God to a time because of Jesus where that agency, that water makes what? What? Wine, joy, inebriation even, abundance. God is saying here, you are no longer a desolate people. Now you are a married people because of Jesus Christ. You are no longer far off. Now you are near. You are no longer being judged and condemned because of your sins. Now, you are being presented to God, pure and holy and washed. Do you see the change? Do you see why the first miracle is also a sign? It's Jesus giving us a sign to be chewed on about our identity Last week, the, bat, the, baptism, eh, the baptism of our Lord was the feast we celebrated, and Jesus was revealed as God's chosen anointed one. But the anointed one, the Christ, has a particular purpose for Israel and for you and me with God's, as God's people. He's to rescue and restore us. Remember in that passage... Remember the passage that we read on Christmas Eve in John's Gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the unfolding of God's purpose that starts for John in chapter 1, goes through the baptism of Christ, and now we see the baptism the redemption of the water actually be being used for wine being wine, wine the wine of gladness john's making the point that jesus here is the bridegroom and the groom has come for his forsaken desolate wife the faithful of israel those who choose him out of his grace look again at verse 5 His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Once again, we have Mary symbolizing the church here. Those of Israel that see Jesus as the anointed Savior are seen in Mary, who doesn't know quite what's going on, doesn't understand quite what's going on in Jesus' ministry yet. And yet she says, okay, well, you know, your time has not yet come. I get it. You guys, do whatever he says. Do you see the faith of Mary here? Do you see the trust of Mary and her son here? Do you see how that is the image of the bride? Again, we are told in the, in the book of Ephesians that marriage is an image showing the relationship between God and his church. And here we have the image of purification being turned into wine. We also saw that rather than being cleansed with the water, Jesus in his baptism cleansed the water. And here we see Jesus making wine out of water. Now Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, demonstrates that the time has come for feasting. The marriage of God with his people And yet, his time has not yet come. But John wants us to know that the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 62 has started. It's begun. And Mary knows it too. And the apostles witness it, at least part of them, and know it as well. We see here not only who Christ is, but we see a model for the church. We see a model for the church. We often don't know exactly what God's will is. We often don't quite see the full picture of what he's doing in our lives. But we can rest assured that he delights to lift us up. He delights to make the forsaken to come near. He delights to make the desolate abundant. How is God at work right now in your life? This passage is meant to ask you. Where are you when it comes to this? Are you living in the joy of the new wine? Are you living in Christ's redemption? Or are you just kind of trudging along? Because if you're just trudging along, this word is for your heart, for your soul, as well as mine, that there's a joy in knowing that this work of God has begun. Now notice, the time has come for Jesus to be in the world. The time will come in John's gospel for Jesus to die for the world. The time will come, as John records in Revelation, when death will be no more, and we'll see the fullness of the wedding feast St. Thomas Aquinas again says, Christ does not serve the good wine first, for at the outset he proposes things that are bitter and hard. Narrow is the way that leads to life, says Matthew in chapter 7. Or says Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Yet the more progress a person makes in his faith and in and, and teaching, the more pleasant it becomes, and the more pleasant He becomes aware of God's sweetness. I wish I could say that I had more experience in that. I wish I was further along to say that I could see more of God's sweetness. But that's the promise. And I have tasted some of it. And one day, I'll see more. I've seen it demonstrated in older Christians. Have you ever been around older Christians? People that are mature in the faith? And you see the joy, the, the, the wine, the gladness that they have in their faith. It's a great thing to behold. I long to be like that. It's not just emotional. It's the Holy Spirit working in them. I could go on to another sermon in the epistle, but I won't. It's the Holy Spirit working in them. But the epistle tells us all about that. The greatest hope we have is that Jesus' time on the cross came. And at the end of time, because of it, if we're found in him, that culmination of the wedding feast is promised to come. The same John that writes the gospel here, writes the book of Revelation. And in chapter 19, he writes, "'Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come.' And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus Christ. Who's the bride? You and me. How are we made glad? How are we made presentable? Because his righteousness, his cleanness, has been given to us to wear. Therefore, we rejoice. Amen.